Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant who was named whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. Shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over the over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would help us to be changed by it. That you would come in and do surgery on our hearts by your grace, by your word. And yet, with anything and everything that we pray for, it is only something that you do, it's only something that you can do, and it goes well. So would you show up, God? Would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to your word? And would you help us? It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen. Um, I'm an impatient man most days, um, but I'm, I'm like on a whole nother level when it comes to traffic. Uh, and not, not like the, you know, bumper to bumper traffic. I feel like I'm okay with that, but like the, you know, when dumb people cut you off and all that stuff, like that part of traffic. Um, but one day when I was in high school, I was on my way to get my friend Bradley. I, we called him B-Rad. Um, from, so we were, I was going to get him from his house. What we did was we would skip first period sometimes. And so I would come to get him later after his mom had already left. He would just like hang out outside like he went to school. Um, and so I would just go pick him up later after we had skipped first period. <clears throat> um, and so I'm headed to his house to get him in my little four-cylinder Ford Ranger uh, when I get a call from B-Rad and he says, dude, my mom's coming back home. I need you to hurry and come get me. I have nowhere to go. 
um, apparently she had left something at home, and, and so she, she sent B-Rad a text saying, hey, uh, can I bring you some lunch or anything like that? She was being real sweet about it. Um, so B-Rad says, dude, you gotta hurry. Um, and so I'm flying, like literally pedal to the metal, going as fast as my little Ford Ranger would go, so 55 miles an hour. Um, but out of nowhere, this white Cadillac pulls out in front of me going, the speed limit, and I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> You're going so slow. Um, and I, I was just real mad, and my, my four-cylinder truck, like you had to go into fourth gear just to get going fast enough to get around a car, um, and I couldn't do it. Like, I couldn't get going fast enough. There was never enough time to get, get going fast enough. Um, so they were just making me wait, this white Cadillac, until finally there was like this downhill section where I got to go like a little bit faster, and I was like, oh yeah, 56 miles an hour, and I, I made it around. Um, and I get to B-Rad's house, and I pull up, and I'm like, dude, hurry up. So he gets in, and, and we're pulling out, and uh, that's when the white Cadillac pulls into the driveway. It was B-Rad's mom. So that person I was honking at, trying to pass a bunch of times and, and upset with, that was, that was B-Rad's mom. I never got to see B-Rad after that day. <laughs> um, I say that because I hope that you can relate in some way. Um, because here's the truth. We are all terrible at waiting. Don't believe me? Uh, slow traffic, bad traffic, slow Wi-Fi, slow walkers at the zoo, uh, slow elevators, slow go-karts, slow red lights, slow talkers, slow-minded folks, slow waiters. All these things frustrate us because they make us wait. We don't like that. The hard truth of the matter is that faith actually means waiting. Faith demands waiting. The reason that Genesis 16 is in the Bible is because Abram and Sarai were not patient. They were terrible at waiting. They could not wait. To which we can't say much because we're, we're absolutely horrible at it too. We get that. We don't like waiting. We get anxious, angry, impatient. We get bothered and frustrated and annoyed when our patience um, and when our impatience leads to action. That's when we get into some big trouble. We think that God has just glossed over the issue of whatever he said he was going to work on, and he's just not working on it, so we're, we have to show up in God's place. Because you know what? Man, it's, it's been a while. I haven't seen this come true yet. When we cannot wait on God, we tend to step into the story and try to muster up something on our own, i.e. we sin, and it explodes, and we're left with all the pieces scattered on the floor, And Genesis 16 is an odd mix of two parts of this story. The beginning of the story, the first half, is where we find three characters who have literally just been a part of this huge explosion of sin, all stemming from one sinful thought. Um, One woman makes another woman sleep with her husband. Her husband is passive about the whole thing and lets it happen. And it ends with one character running away to die in the wilderness. But the second half of the story is where we have a surprise fourth character who steps in to pick up the pieces of the first half. This is where the hero of the story comes in. Without this hero, the three characters are left in an explosion that they have no way of, no way of dealing with. If the characters are the problems, more of the problem will not fix the problem. Faith means waiting, but we are not very good at it. We try to fix our spouse because it seems like God sure isn't doing anything about them. 
We try to overparent our kids because we think that God isn't going to protect them in ways that we approve of. We try to force apologies and repentance out of people. And in all of these different ways, we get super frustrated at other people and even ourselves for not being as quickly perfect as we want to be. And we come to the realization over and over again in our anger and frustration that, you know what? Man, I'm not very good at waiting. I know it's a Bible verse. Like, I know I'm supposed to wait. But it's hard. I would venture to say it's impossible. We do not want to wait for God to show up. And so we choose our own way of going about life. And we end up with just an explosion of sin where we have pieces of us, pieces of others, and we're left with no way to pick them up. And so the question becomes, how can we wait on the Lord? Like if we know and we see what just happened in Genesis 16, there was this huge mess that just happened because people couldn't wait on the Lord. How do we do that so that this mess doesn't happen? The answer lies within Genesis 16. It's kind of a confusing and odd passage, but we will see two truths in the two halves of our story. The first is, we are not good at waiting. And the second is, but God sees and looks after us. And both of these truths will help us to fight the fight of faith when it comes to waiting on God in faith. We are sinfully bad at waiting. We are not good. We are terrible at it. But God sees and looks after and has mercy on sinners. And both of these truths will help us to wait. So uh, let's take a look at the first one. If you look at verse 1. Now, and we're just going to pause. Starts with now pretty much every time in this thing. But now, we just have to stop because of Genesis. That's their fashion. But our story of Abram and his faith began in chapter 12, where God called Abram to leave his home of 75 years to dwell in a land where he did not know where yet. And then while he's out in that land, a severe famine hits. It takes all of 10 verses for faith to go from its inception to its suffering. Um, Then because of the growth of their people and the pressure added on by the nations that are barbaric in nature, Abram and Lot get into it and Lot ends up leaving. And then later, Abram learns that Lot has been captured. So he goes to get his nephew and he literally has to go to war with these huge nations and armies while he dwells in tents. Then in chapter 15, Abram is rightfully scared because of all that has just happened. And so he doubts God's promises. Then he believes. Then he doubts again. Um, And in one of the most amazing moments in history, God makes the covenant with Abram and passes through the pieces, and the ceremony is over before Abram can pass through. Essentially showing Abram that this journey of faith will not be up to Abram, but up to God. And this is where we pick up with our narrative. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant, literally slave, her property, um, whose name was Hagar. And here we see the issue that's going to cause all of the sin that we are about to see. Sarai is barren. She cannot have any kids. She has bore Abram no children. God said in chapter 12 that he was going to bless Abram with all of this offspring, but throughout the narrative, no offspring has come, and that's just too much for Sarai to deal with. And we get it. Like maybe the conversations went well for a while. Maybe they just sat together and said, You know, maybe today will be the day. Maybe this month. Maybe this year. But nothing happens. No baby comes. And it's been 10 years since the promise. 
Can you imagine having to wait 10 years for a promise to come true? It's like somebody said, hey, I got you a birthday present for your birthday in 10 years. <laughs> but not only that, like this is just 10 years in the story. So it's, it's actually worse than that. Um, it's, hey, I got you a present for a day that is coming. And then they don't tell you what the day is. It's like, okay, uh, that's, okay. Like we want to punch that guy. Um, <laughs> That's super frustrating. So you know she's thinking, listen, I'm already past the point um, of being too old. I'm just getting more sad and, and more impatient. I'm humiliated. I'm the reason the blessing hasn't come. I must have done something wrong to make this happen. And women in this culture were essentially rendered useless if they could not bear children. So we get that. We get why she feels that way. You can see why she would start down the path that she's going on. She's tired of waiting. But this is actually where it goes, where it all goes downhill. She steps in to force the promise to come true. She becomes her own God. Look at verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into, literally sleep with, my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now she's not wrong. Like the Lord has prevented her from bearing children. Um, but she is wrong in that she's using that for her justification to act on her own, to go out on her own. And this is also, it's not legally or morally wrong at the time. Like this was something that they would do. The culture allowed for this thing to happen. If a woman was barren, she could use one of her slaves. It was her property at the time um, to build a family through, and it was good to go from there. The slave had to forfeit all of the rights to the family that owned her, and that was that. Like it was socially and culturally acceptable, but it was totally the wrong decision. It was socially acceptable, but it was sin. And so she proposes this sinful idea to Abram, and in verse 2, finishing off, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And we all collectively say, don't do it, bro. <laughs> Stop there. Um, but he doesn't. Verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Oh, boy. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Oh, boy. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Literally, she just mocks Sarai. Like, ha, huh, you are a barren woman. Didn't take me long. Like, I, I might be your servant girl, but clearly I'm more of a, more of a woman than you are. Hagar's situation is a little more reasonable in our eyes, I feel like, because Hagar was absolutely just forced into this situation and she had no, um, like this was not God's plan. Um, so she responds naturally, of course, but naturally means sinfully. <clears throat> um, then some more mess in verse five. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. <laughs> what? Um, I gave my servant to your embrace. Literally, I put her in your lap. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. What in the world is happening? Uh, this was your idea, you crazy. Like, what is happening here? Um, but yet again, like, she's not totally wrong. Um, if Abram had been a man and just said no, like, they would not be in the situation. Um, the sin at that point, like, at the first point, was just an idea. It was just a thought. Um, Abram could have stepped up and put that mess to bed quickly, but he just went along with it, and now he's in this huge mess. Uh, he's in trouble, 
And then his response is, is really just as bad or worse as going along with the idea in the first place. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. He just says, deal with her however you want to. She is your property, and so she does. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is nothing more than Hagar saying, I would rather die than be here. So she goes to the wilderness where there is no shelter, there is no food, there is no water. She goes to die. When we fail to wait on God, sinful self-effort comes quick and then sin just explodes into more and more sin all because they could not wait any longer for God to fulfill the promise that he said he was going to fulfill. We should absolutely relate to all of these characters because this is the part of the story where you and I show up. We are like Sarai and we're tired of waiting on God to show up, so we show up for ourselves and we try to make God's promises come true for us. You know what? I deserve this. I'm going to make this happen. We are like Hagar and we are boastful and self-serving and self-appreciating when we know that every good gift comes from above. Like we could form a child in our bodies like that actually happens by us. We pat ourselves on the back for the work that God does. We are like Abram and we are passive and non-confrontational and quiet and self-preserving unto the dismay of those around us. Sin begets more sin and more sin and more sin. And all of this story is possible because uh, Abram actually went down to sin in Egypt in chapter 12. Hagar was picked up there after they left Egypt. And then that also means that 400 years later, God's people would end up in slavery in Egypt because of one man's sin. Sin comes when we fail to wait on God and we try to make it happen on our own. We are not alone, thankfully. Uh, The Bible is just full of stories of impatience. Uh, One really impatient man, his name was Saul. Saul had everything going for him. He was tall, he was handsome, uh, and he was about to become the king of Israel. He was a pretty big deal. Till one day, uh, right before he's about to ascend to the throne, a prophet of God sent him a message saying, and this is 1 Samuel 10, verse 8, Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. So these seven days for Saul were just to to teach him patience uh, and dependence upon God, but Saul just couldn't wait on all that because later in verse 8, it says he waited seven days, so he did that part, uh, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished the offering, finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Literally as soon as he finished that thing. Saul had to wait just a few more seconds and he couldn't do it. So what happens? Samuel shows up and he says to Saul, And you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, because you could not wait, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart 
And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul couldn't wait. Sarai couldn't wait. We can't wait. We're terrible at it. But this is actually a good thing. Because we are essentially saying that we long for the promise to come true. If we are believers in in Jesus Christ, we have an amazing future that is to come um, where we will be perfect and spotless and in the presence of our Heavenly Father, where there will be no more tears, no more sadness, no more pain. So it only makes sense that they're like, we want that to happen. We want that promise to come true. Feeling the frustration of waiting is normal and part of how God has designed us. So there should never be a place here on earth where we are absolutely and totally content. Like there should always be an unsettledness, unsettledness about us, but it cannot lead us to working our own way there. That actually defeats the purpose. We have to know this about ourselves. We have to see our tendencies to step into God's place to do God's work. Otherwise, we'll be working hard, thinking, you know what, man, I'm pretty awesome. I worked hard there, did well there. Look at me go. Yay, me. And then, like, for... Uh, Sarai, like a baby was born after all. Like this happened. We did a good thing. The baby, like we have an offspring now. But the weight of the sin came down hard on all the parties involved in a failure to wait. So what about you? Where are you failing to wait on God? Where are you stepping into the place of God in order to make things happen? In order to see God grow us in our waiting, we have to come to God every day with the truth of these six verses. Admitting and confessing our lack of waiting, just how relatable we are with these three characters. And then we remember the hero of the story. Because if all we have so far is verses one through six, we're left unto ourselves with, with no, no fix. We need a hero. Genesis 16, 1 through 6 is our story. There is no happy ending, only destruction. There is no hero, only those in need of a hero. But God's grace to us is that the hero steps in, in part two of our story. God sees and looks after and has mercy on sinners. If you look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord, uh, this is for the very first time ever in the Bible, the angel of the Lord is mentioned. The angel of the Lord found her, I mean in Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. So she's going to die. She knows that, but she's still just trying to make her way back to Egypt, her, her homeland, and when she comes upon a spring of water. Like, this is a life-saving place for her. And then in verse 8, the angel of the Lord, and he said, Hagar. So he knows her name. And then he, he even knows the next part about her. Servant of Sarai. Where have you come from and where are you going? I always like it when God asks questions like that, like he doesn't know. You know, it's like in the garden and he's like, Adam, what have you done? Like, where are you at? It's like, God, you know this. Um, But uh, so she said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The word for uh, return here is the same one used throughout the Bible for the word repentance. Essentially, turn away from where you are going and return back to the favor of the Lord. You are going to die here. Come back to where I have you. Same thing God does with us in our sin. You are going to die there. Come back to me. 
It will be hard. Sarai has got it out for you, and that, and that is a whole other ordeal. I get that, but there is a purpose for it. If you finish, finish off that verse. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. So wild donkeys were not house pets. Like they would destroy everything. That's the reason they are called wild donkeys. They would just keep them in the wild. They wouldn't try to domesticate them. They were stubborn, independent, strong, and prideful. And your son, Hagar, and his lineage will always be against everyone, and everyone will be against him. His hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. Fast forward, the lineage of Abram and Isaac and Jacob will always have Ishmael as an enemy. Even today, the Arab people, Ishmael's descendants, are at war with Israel. For you and I, this doesn't sound like a blessing. But it is to Hagar. Because this sounds like vengeance. Your son will be trouble to the very people who wronged you. Hagar heard this as a promise and a blessing to her and her people. And then verse 13. So she, the mother of the enemy, essentially called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. What's happening here? Like did God really just bless the other team? Is that what just happened? Did God just bless the very men and women that will be against his people forever? Like, what's going on here? This is astounding. And it should be. Because this means two amazing things. First, it means that God makes it hard to be his people. It will not be an easy path. It will not always have health, wealth, or prosperity, most likely. Um, People will hate us, try to kill us, persecute us. Look no further than our brothers and sisters who are being killed every day because of their faith. If we had no villain, we would need no hero. If it was easy, we would not need Jesus. God makes it so that we will depend on him, and that's first of all. But secondly... It means that God would look with mercy on a sinner on the other side and intervene. It means that God sees and looks after those on the other side, his enemy. We are that enemy. James 4 says, You adulteresses, you do not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Who is an enemy of God? A friend of the world. That's where you and I stand if left unto ourselves. We are Hagar in this story. You and I are enemies of God unless something happens, unless a hero steps into our story to save the day. Because we will not find a hero inside of the first six verses. We will not find a hero in our own story. 
We should not be bothered by God looking and seeing and blessing Hagar because this means that God looks after and sees and blesses you and I. This means that God sees all people in their sin and as enemies and yet steps in to make a way for them to have life. This is the only way that we receive mercy. This is the only way that we are blessed. This is the only way any of the pieces of our lives are put back together. God must step in as the hero and in Jesus he has. How do we know? We look no further than the cross of Christ. Where Jesus cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Where God turns away from his one and only son in order that you and I may be looked upon. In our sin, God could not look upon us with grace or mercy, not unless that sin was taken from us and put onto another. On the cross, our sin was substituted for Jesus' perfection and righteousness. So now, when the God of the universe looks upon us, he doles out blessing upon blessing upon blessing, and we receive it all. But it was all Jesus's. It's everything that he deserved. If we stand today in the middle of verses 1 through 6 in a huge mess of our sins, God invites us to repent, to turn back to the God who sees and looks after us. And let our lips speak something like verse 13, truly here I have seen in Jesus, him who looks after me, an enemy, no rightful heir at all. Glory be to the God who does such a thing as this. That truly is astounding. So when we find ourselves impatient and frustrated and longing for God to just work, we can come back to the truth of Genesis 16 and we can see that God has already done the work. That the finished product will come in due time. With news like this, it makes it much easier to wait on God. If God really does see and look after us, we can wait on him to move. If God hasn't brought it to be, we we can wait. If we have Jesus, we have no need to do anything but wait. We have everything we could possibly need dwelling inside of us. To what end are we trying to go? The good news of the gospel is that it's already here in Jesus. So we're going to celebrate together by taking communion. Um, And when we do this, we're celebrating that good news of this gospel that Jesus went unseen that we could be seen. That Jesus gave his body and his blood as a sacrifice for the salvation and blessing of our sinful souls. But if you have yet to admit your sin and utter lack of ability to to self-effort your way into the promise, into heaven, then I ask that you remain in your seat on the basis of 1 Corinthians that says you would be eating and drinking the body and blood that are not yours yet. The truth is, on judgment day, we will have either been looked after by God in Jesus or we are not seen by God at all. If this is you, do not walk out of these doors today without knowing, without a doubt, that God looks after you. If this is you, turn from your sin today and walk in newness of life. Walk by faith in Jesus 
today. Don't leave without knowing for sure. For all of us, uh, here is our prayer. Father, thank you for looking away from your son that you may look upon me. Remind me of this news whenever I start to get impatient with the work that you are doing. Empower my waiting by the good news of your gospel. So take your time. Take a moment to pray. Prepare your hearts and minds for this celebration. Um, And then when you're ready, grab the elements, bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them together here in a minute. How do we know that God is looking after us? How do we know that God will do everything that he has promised? Because the work is already done. The work was finished. On the night when he was betrayed, he took some bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me let's pray God we thank you for stepping into our story 
our huge mess and explosion and, and pieces scattered all over the floor because of our sin with no way out. You stepped in. You are the hero of this story. You are the hero of, of our story. And we can do nothing but praise you and give you thanks and honor and glory. We thank you that, that as you looked on us and saw how far away we were and, and as enemies as we were, you made a way. There's no better truth for our hearts to wait than that. Because we know that one day, because of that truth, because of Jesus, we will be perfect. There will be no need to be impatient any longer. There's nothing that we will be frustrated about. And so in the meantime, we wait. Would you help us to do that by your grace, by your spirit, by your word? And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask.